If you have your Bibles, just go ahead and turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Um, as there are younger kids in here, um, I always try to, if there's family service, I probably would have avoided the text, but we are in, in chapter 7. Um, so I just kind of want to give you guys a warning. You can quickly run and take your kids to Ignite if you want to. We are going to talk about marital intimacy um, as the Bible is going to talk about it. So I just want to give you guys a little heads up for that. So I'm going to pray for us. Um, I want to pray also, also over our fathers, um, knowing that Father's Day is a, a great day for where we um, celebrate our fathers and we love our fathers. It's a happy day. It's a sad day because some of us are mourning the loss of our fathers. Um, so let's pray um, over our fathers. Let's pray for us as we study the word um, and let's see what the Lord has for us. Uh, Lord, we thank you uh, that you are our ultimate father, that you love us, that you care for us, that you've sent your son to die for us, um, that we are your children, that you've adopted us into your family, and you are a perfect father that loves us, that disciplines us, that corrects us, a faithful father that would never leave us. Lord, and we thank you for our earthly fathers that you've blessed us with. Uh, even though they are far from perfect, um, they are, in a sense, dimly reflect you and the way you love us. Uh, Lord, thank you uh, for the blessings of fathers. And Lord, today is a heavy day uh, for many reasons. Uh, as we see families leave, as we mourn the death of some of our fathers, um, some of us are trying to be fathers, and it just doesn't seem to work. Um, Lord, can you comfort them? Can you encourage them? Can you meet them where they are? Lord, I pray that as we open up your word, um, can you speak to us and encourage us? Can you reveal truth to us? Um, make yourself known to us. Can you stir our hearts and our affections for you? Um, Lord, help us to see that you um, are our perfect spouse, that you fulfill us, you satisfy us, you give us purpose and that our worth is ultimately in you and in you alone. So come, Lord, and make yourself known. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the letter to the Corinthians, Paul is addressing 10 issues. Um, and basically in all the issues, what he's trying to do is he's trying to remind the church of who they are in Christ. He's trying to remind them because you have been made holy positionally, you now must become practically what you are positionally. In other words, if God has made you holy, what must you become? You must, must become holy, become what you are. And, and so that's my hope for us as a church, as Christians, is that we would become what we are. If we've been declared righteous, that we would live righteous lives. If we've been made holy, if we've been made go, uh, godly, that is what we must become. And so all of these issues, basically, he's pointing them to the gospel of Jesus Christ, reminding them of who Christ is and what Christ has done for them. Now, we are right in chapter 7, Paul's addressing the fifth of 10 major issues. And so we find out in verse 1, like this was one of the issues that the church in Corinth questioned Paul about. They wrote to him about and had certain questions. And it seems like these Christians kind of needed instructions. They needed instructions and wisdom about marriage and singleness. And really what we're going to learn and what we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about marriage and singleness. And we're going to discover that both of them is a gift from the Lord. So if you're married, that is a gift from the Lord. And if you're single, 
That is a gift from the Lord. And the way we navigate through marriage, the way we navigate through singleness is to live the life the Lord has assigned for us. And that principle, lead the life that Lord has assigned to you, that principle, it really is the overarching principle that Paul is really going to address throughout the passage. And so today we're not gonna get to that principle, but at the application, I'm gonna show you where that principle is. And hopefully next week, we'll keep unpacking that principle of living the life the Lord has assigned to you. So let's look at our text in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. It says this, Now in response to the matters you wrote about, notice the, the, the quotation, so this is from the Corinthians, It is good for a man not to use a woman for sex. But because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise, a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. Do not deprive one another except when you agree for a time to devote yourself to prayer. Then come together again, otherwise Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. Now, obviously, we we see here in verse 1 that Paul is quoting a a statement from the Corinthians. And and the statement is a really awkward statement. It says, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, if you think about that statement, it's good not for a man to have sexual relations uh, with a woman. Like, that statement can be both true or false. For example, it can be true if it refers to extramarital sex. In other words, sex outside of marriage, that statement is true. No, you should not be having sex outside of marriage. But that statement can also be false if it refers to unselfish marital sex that God commands. In other words, where sex is withhold inside of the marriage. And so the question is like, we're looking at it and we're like, well, which one did the Corinthians meant? The problem is, The Bible doesn't tell us, so we can only speculate. So briefly speculate. Uh, And here's a little speculation. Again, this is a speculation. I could be wrong, but it really don't matter. But let's go down that rabbit trail for a little bit. Um, In the previous chapter, we already discovered that some, some of these Corinthians had a wrong view of the physical body. In other words, if you remember last week, they said that really sex with prostitutes is not a sin. Why? Because sex is only physical. Uh, because the physical body doesn't matter. God's going get, to get, get, get rid of it anyway. So as long as it's physical, it's not really that bad of thing. That's a wrong view of the, of the physical body. And we learned, no, your physical body matters. Why? Because God created it. It belongs to God. And God is going to raise it up. Um, but then the other extreme when it comes to the physical body uh, is that, that physical is evil, And non-physical, spiritual is good. And since sex is physical in a sense, sex is evil, that's why you don't do it. So again, which one did the Corinthians mean by? 
again, we don't know. We can only speculate, but we can see that both of them more than likely had a wrong view of the physical body. And so what Paul is doing, he, he is taking their statement and he says in a sense, no, on the contrary, it is actually good for a husband and a wife to enjoy sex together regularly. It is a way for them to avoid sexual immorality. This is what he says, but because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. Now we read that verse and that verse in a sense is like, well, that's a dumb verse. Like that's obvious, right? Like shouldn't they be knowing about this? Like, why would Paul kind of tell them the obvious? Um, yes, it is obvious for us. But I think in order to really understand why he's saying this, we have to kind of go back and say, what was the culture like? What was the cultural context like? Um, in the ancient Roman world, a husband would generally sleep with his wife with only one purpose, the purpose of procreation. While he would sleep with his wife for procreation, he will pursue sex outside of marriage for pleasure. In other words, you sleep with your wife to have babies. You sleep with everybody else outside of marriage for the fun of it. That was the culture. Um, here is, I think this is how you pronounce it, Demosthenes. He was a Greek statement and an orator in ancient Athens. And this is his quote um, around 352 AD. This is what he says. He says, this is what living with a woman as one's wife means. To have children by her and to introduce the sons to the members of the clan and to betroth the daughter to husbands as one's own. So in other words, what is he saying? What's the purpose of a wife? Have babies. They train the babies. Marry off the babies. That's what marriage and sex is all about. But this is what else he says. Look at this. He says, mistresses, we keep for the sake of pleasure. Concubines for the daily care of our persons, but for wives to bear us legitimate children and to be the faithful guardians of our households. So what kind of culture is Paul writing to? A culture where it's like, okay, yes, yeah, sex with your wife happens, but it's only to have babies. No fun, no pleasure, no enjoyment whatsoever. You find a woman outside of it. And what's the job of a wife? To have sex with her husband, to have babies, to raise the babies up, and to marry them off while the husband just goes and does his own thing, pursues his own pleasure. So what does Paul do? Paul says, no, that's wrong. And he confronts the culture and says, no, God designed sex for a husband and a wife and only between a husband and a wife, not just for procreation, although that is a purpose of sex, but it's also for the enjoyment of one another. And this enjoyment and this pleasure must only happen between a husband and a wife. Anything outside of that is sexual immorality. And then this is why he, he explains the statement in verse, in, in verse 4. He says this. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. 
And in the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. Now, what Paul is saying about the wife, that's not controversial. All the men in Corinth would say, yeah, they have no right over their bodies. Their bodies belong to us, and we have authority over it. But then again, he confronts the culture. And he writes something so controversial, so countercultural to the ancient Roman men saying, yeah, that's true. But the other part is also true. Your body, men, do not belong to you, but belongs to your wife. And they have authority over it. And this implies that a husband and a wife should enjoy sex exclusively with each other. And when a spouse, a husband or a wife, commits sexual immorality, they're seeking to satisfy themselves and are acting as if they have authority over their own body. So in a sense, sexual immorality is not just pursuing sex outside of marriage. But sexual immorality is also refusing sex inside of marriage. I don't think we've ever thought about that. Because at the heart of what sexual morality is when it comes to marriage is saying to your spouse, you have no right over my body. My body belongs to me. You have no authority over it. And what is Paul saying? No, that's not the case. The case is your bodies belong to one another. And you have authority over one another's body. And thus, sex should be enjoyed exclusively between a husband and a wife. And it should be enjoyed regularly. And neither spouse should hold back from one another. That's why he he, he gives this command. He he says this um, in verse 5. Here's the command. Look at it. What does verse 5 say? Do not deprive one another. Since a husband and a wife should regularly enjoy sex exclusively with each other, they should not rob each other of it. They should not hold back from each other. Now, he does provide an exception clause. Look at the exception clause. Except when you agree for a time to devote yourself to prayer. Then come together again. Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So he says sex must be regularly enjoyed between a husband and a wife. But there's an exception clause. And notice the conditions of the exception clause. The first condition is this. Look at it. Except when you agree. So in other words, the first condition of the exception clause, there must be an agreement. The second exception clause is agreement for how long? For a time. In other words, there's a limit. There's a time period so that you can do what? So you can devote yourself to the Lord in prayer. But how long should that exception clause last? What should happen at the end? Look at the last part of, of, of verse 5. He says what? Then come together. Why? so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Here's what we see a major purpose of sex is not just for procreation or for enjoyment, but sex silently works to protect us from Satan tempting us of falling into the trap of sexual immorality. 
it silently works. Like from my experience of walking with couples that have struggled uh, with extramarital affairs, you know what was a common denominator? The neglect of, of sex. Whether it was not just inside of the bedroom, but outside of the bedroom. In other words, the husband wasn't loving his wife. And they were using sex to beat one another up, and they became so bitter and so enraged towards one another. And what did Satan do? He kind of came in, and he tempted them. And there they found themselves in the midst of sexual immorality. So, so here's the very first principle I think we can learn from our text if you're taking notes. And again, if you notice the, um, the topic, the, the title of the sermon is called Marriage and Singleness. For you single people, um, if you are planning to get married, this is for you as well. Um, but don't worry, single people, I'm going to talk to you as well. But I need to talk to the married people first. So here's the very first principle we are learning. If you're married, regularly enjoy sex with your spouse. Happy Father's Day, guys. <laughs> Regularly enjoy sex with your spouse. Um, throughout church history, and I even think the church, we've done an awful job when it comes to sex. Like the world is constantly teaching our children about sex. What is the church doing? Like we, we're just not going to talk about it, Okay. That's just bad. The, the church history has taught, no, no, sex is not for enjoyment, it's not for pleasure, it's only for procreation. But think about this. Sex, yeah, is for procreation. But sex is a good gift from God for our enjoyment, for our pleasure. Like rarely, regularly enjoying sex with our spouse, we see is a God-ordained means of protecting us from sexual immorality. That the Bible even commands us to enjoy sex. Like I'm going to read Proverbs uh, chapter 5, verse 15 to 20. That will be my only verse because I don't want to like just kind of beat the, 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 the dead horse. But look at what the Proverbs says. And again, uh, Proverbs is wisdom literature. It's using figure of speech. And notice what Solomon is writing to his son. He says this. And hopefully you can kind of catch the figure of speech. Drink water from your own cistern. Water flowing from your own well. Should your springs flow in the streets, streams, in the public squares? No, they should be for you alone and not for you to share with strangers. Let your fountain be blessed. You're like, what is the guy talking about? Water? No, because here's the point. Let your fountain be blessed and take pleasure in the wife of your youth. What is he saying? He's saying your spouse is like a water well, a fountain, a cistern. In the ancient world, what did you need to survive? Water. And he is saying, enjoy that water. Don't share that water with other people. Don't let that water go to waste. Enjoy it. Drink from it. And then he says this, a loving deer, a graceful doe, let her breast always satisfy you. Be lost in her love forever. Why, my son, would you lose yourself with a forbidden woman or embrace a wayward woman? In other words, what he's commanding his son is enjoy your spouse. 
Because when you enjoy your spouse and you're satisfied in her, there's no need for a wayward woman. There's no need for sexual immorality. Um, Tim Keller, in his book, Meaning of Marriage, and I just thought this to be very helpful. It says this, Sex for a spouse is a covenant renewal ceremony in which pleasing your spouse gives you more pleasure. And here's the imagery, and I love the imagery here. He says, it's like oil, sex is like oil in an engine. Without it, friction between all the moving parts will burn out the motor. Without joyful, loving sex, the friction in a marriage will bring anger, resentment, hardness, and disappointment. Rather than being the commitment glue that holds you together, it becomes the force that divides you. Like in our culture, the joke is, sex is for the husband's pleasure and for the wife's dreaded duty. But that's not how the Bible talks about it. The Bible portrays sex and marriage both pleasure and duty for the husband and the wife. One of the things that we need to pay attention to if you're married, are you enjoying your spouse? The way I look at it is, if you're not enjoying your spouse, that's a warning sign that something is wrong. And if you don't pay attention to the check engine light and you just put duct tape over it and pretend it doesn't exist, eventually the engine is going to break down. The marriage will break down. One of the things we have to understand is this. If we don't enjoy our spouses, there's something wrong. And men and women both approach sex differently. Men, and men, you need to learn this. We approach sex, we need to have sex in order to feel loved. Women need to feel loved in order to have sex. And because of our approaches are completely different, it is so easy for us to punish one another. Because you're not having sex with me, I don't feel loved, and guess what I'm not going to do to you? I'm not going to show you that I love you. And when the wife does not feel loved, guess what's not going to happen? So here, men, it starts with you. Your body does not belong to you. They have authority over it, which means you need to love your wife. And she needs to feel loved, not inside the bedroom, outside of the bedroom. Work on your marriage. Paul says, do not deprive one another. And if you do... What's the conditions? Talk about it. Have an agreement. Work through it. Seek the Lord in it. And then come together. Let's move on. There was a, a whole passage I was going to read to you, but let, let's move on for sake of time. Paul now is addressing, talking to, to, to singles here. So for the marriage people, you kind of rest a little bit. Single people, here you go. Look at verse 7. He says this, I wish that all people were as I am, 
But each one has his own gift from God. One person has this gift, another has that. I say to the married and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain as I am, but if they don't have self-control, they should marry, since it's better to marry than to burn with desire. Like one of the significant things that I feel like the Lord really taught me in the text that, that, that stood out to me here and jumped kind of off the page that like all of us can agree that marriage is a gift from the Lord and it's for our good and for our sanctification process. But so is singleness. God does not require all Christian adults to marry. And this is why Paul says, each one has his own gift from God. I wish that you could be like me. And when he says each one has his own gift, he's implying like some of you have the gift of marriage. What do you do with it? You live it out. Some of you are going to have the gift of singleness. What do you do with it? You live it out. And again, by him saying, as I wish you could all be like me, and kind of promoting singleness in a sense, he's going to do it more at the, the rest of chapter 7. It's countercultural because in that culture, like even in the Roman ancient world, you were penalized if you did not get married. I don't know how they penalized you. Maybe they raised your taxes, but you got penalized for not getting married. It was expected for you to get married and to have children. That is the entire purpose of your life. But what is Paul writing here? He is saying in verse 8, to the unmarried or to the widows. When some of your translations says, it says to the, to the widowers or widows. It's like, which one does he mean? Like, we really don't know, but... Regardless of the translation, what is Paul implying here? The ideal situation is to remain single, to not marry or to not remarry. But then there's another exception clause. What was the exception clause? But if you lack self-control, do what? Get married. Because it's better to get married than to burn with sexual desires and commit sexual immorality. So, so here's the principle for singles that I want to give you. If you're single, value the gift of singleness. Value the gift of singleness. I know it's weird, and I know for some of you, you're really saying, well, what about the Old Testament? We're going to get there. Don't worry. We've got to look at the whole counsel of God's word. But, but let's just talk a little bit about singleness. Like, like a lot of churches and cultures and even pockets of cultures today make unmarried adults feel inferior. Singles might feel like you might be missing out on the quote-unquote good life. Or you feel like married people look down upon you thinking, what's wrong with you? Why can't you grow up? You're just selfish. You should marry. You should have children. But what does Paul say in chapter 7? He speaks to you and he portrays singleness in a sense as a gift from God, a strategic calling by which you might be able to serve God more. Now, this has not always been the case in the history of salvation here. So as we look at this passage, I also think we've got to look at the whole council of Scripture here. Think about this when we start with Genesis. 
What did God pronounce in Genesis? It is when he created Adam and Adam was alone and there was no suitable helper for Adam. What did God say? It is not good for man to be alone. And then he made him a suitable helper and he made Eve. And what was the command that he gave to them? Be fruitful and multiply. And under the old covenant, God expected the Israelite men and women to marry and to have kids. And according to the law, being married and having children meant you were blessed. And to be barren meant you were cursed. The Israelites needed to marry. They needed to have kids. And they needed offspring to keep the family name, to keep the land that they have inherited. And the offspring idea was such a huge idea that if your brother died and he was married and he didn't have kids, it was your responsibility to procreate with his wife so that his name may continue and he may keep the land in his family name. But not so under the new covenant. You see, throughout the Old Testament, you have this language of offspring. And it really starts in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when God cursed the serpent. What did he tell to the serpent? And from Eve's offspring, there will be enmity. And he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And then when God made a promise to Abraham, what was that promise? The promise of offspring and what would the results be of the offspring blessings to all the nations and what paul is doing in galatians chapter 3 he's taking all this offspring language in the old testament that ultimately points to the greatest offspring the one and only offspring who would mediate god's blessing to the world and he says jesus is that offspring in galatians three sixteen, he says now the promises were spoken to abraham and to his seed aka and to his offspring he does not say and to seeds as though referring to many but referring to one and to your seed who is Christ. And yes, while being married and having children is part of our creational norm, it is no longer fundamental to God's covenant people. And from our passage, Paul says that God has gifted some of you with singleness. And the results can be being more devoted to the Lord, to serve Him more wholeheartedly without having the responsibility and the burden and the stress of being married and having children. And so for you singles, like here's what I want to encourage you. I know most of you in our culture today, you might, you're single and you're like, I'm about to turn 30 and you see it as a curse. No, that could be a gift from the Lord. Well, some of you have been married and you're remaining single and you feel odd and everybody looks down on you. It's like, no, singleness is a gift from the Lord. But there's an exception clause. If you're burning with sexual desire, then get married. So let's, let's wrap it up with application here and let's see how we can point to Christ with all of this. I think what we can conclude in our passage 
is that God graciously gives singleness to some and marriage to others. Now, the principle I told you about, you're like, I don't read it in the text, but here's the principle. Lead the life the Lord has assigned to you. And we see this in verse 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17, it says this. Let each one live his life in the situation the Lord assigned when God called him. The Lord has assigned to you your life. Live it. So what does that mean for us? Let's talk to the married people again. If you're married, and regardless of your marital situation, whether it's a good marriage or a bad marriage, next week we're going to talk about whether you're married to a non-believer. What do you do if you're married? Live the life the Lord has assigned to you. Don't long for singleness. Don't long for someone else's marriage. Live the life the Lord has assigned for you. That means in your marriage, what do you do with it? You cultivate it. You work hard at it. You trust the Lord in it. And as you trust the Lord in it, like you look to Jesus Christ as the ultimate perfect spouse, as the ultimate one that fulfills. Like, I think one of the worst things we can do in marriage, and we, we, we see this in stupid vows, which are really not vows that people say in weddings nowadays. Oh, you complete me. Oh, you fulfill me. That's just a load of fill in the blank. That is wrong. Like, like, no, they do not complete you. They do not fulfill you. And if you view your spouse as completing you and fulfilling you, you're setting them up for, dis- for, for yourself, for them for failure, and for you for disappointment. Like, no human being that is sinful will ever fulfill or ever satisfy. I don't care how good they are. That was never the purpose, never the intentions. Like our spouse or a, a gift from the Lord. In the sense, they satisfy a little bit. In a sense, we get to enjoy them and we get to take delight in them. But who is the one that was ultimately meant to satisfy, the ultimate meant to fulfill? Jesus. Like why bow down to the gift and not bow down to the giver of that gift? And so instead of like beating your spouse up and looking them as one heap of disappointment because they fell short of fulfilling you and satisfying you, it's like, no, look to Jesus Christ as the perfect spouse, as the one who fulfills, as the one who satisfies. And then enjoy the gift that he has given you in your spouse and use that gift according to his purposes, not your purposes, his purpose is by enjoying it and taking pleasure in knowing it is from the Lord, but it was never meant to fulfill or satisfy. It was meant to point me to the one who fulfills and the one who satisfies. It is meant for me to worship God and saying, thank you for my smoking hot wife. I am so grateful for her, a gift that you have given me. For you single people, Don't long to be married in order to feel fulfilled or in order to feel like you serve a purpose or in order to feel like you need to be married in order to have any worth in life. Like I think we can long for a godly wife, 
a godly husband. I don't think there's any wrong with that. But what it becomes wrong is when we long for it because we feel like I can only have worth and purpose and value if I get married. And to all of you married people, what do you say? How did that work out for you? <laughs> no, it doesn't work out. No. If you are in Christ, you are married to Christ. We, the church, are the bride of Christ, which means what? He's the one that gives us a purpose. He is the one that gives us value and worth. It is not found in a future spouse. It's not found in the idea of marriage. It is found in Christ and in Christ alone. You can live the life of singleness for the season the Lord has given you and still be fulfilled and satisfied and have a purpose if it is in Christ. Outside of Christ, not much, just disappointment. And again, the principle for the married and the principle for the single is live the life the Lord has given you. Look to Christ as the ultimate spouse, the perfect spouse, the one that satisfies, the one that fulfills, the one that gives purpose. If your marriage struggles, you can look to Christ. He's the one that satisfies me. He's the one that gives me purpose. He's the one that gives me worth. I can love my spouse. I can sacrifice to my spouse because I have the perfect spouse in Jesus Christ. I can live a singleness life for the glory of God, for the furtherance of the gospel because I have the perfect spouse, Jesus. I'm not alone. I have Jesus, I have his people, and he is the one that gives me worth and value and purpose. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for the gift of marriage. We thank you for the gift of singleness. Lord, my prayer for us, can you help us to live the life that you have assigned for us? Lord, for us that are married, there are times and seasons where we look at our spouses and we are hurt, there's pain, there's resentment, there's anger, there's bitterness. For some of us, there's even regret saying, I wish I never got married. And yet, for some unknown reason, Lord, our spouse was a strategic choice made by you. You have given our spouses to us. So, Lord, can you help us to do the hard work of cultivating our marriages? Can you help us as husbands to love our wives, to lay down our lives for our wives, to serve them and to wash them with your word to, so that they could be presented before you as spotless, perfect, and blameless because that's what you do to us. And Lord, can you help wives to honor their husbands, to submit to them and to care for them and to love them Lord, you know the marriages in here that are struggling. You know some of the baggage and some of the damage. Can you heal? Can you protect? Can you renew? And Lord, for those that are single, you, you know them. You know what they're going through. Can you help them to see that their singleness is not a curse but a gift from you? That there's a strategic calling can they use that strategic calling to serve you in a greater capacity?
Can you help them to see that all of their value, their worth, and their purpose can be found in you and in you alone? And help them to trust you. Lord, all of us are so guilty of wishing we had somebody else's life. But can you help us to see that the lies that you've given us, the good, the bad, the ugly, have been assigned by you, and you have a purpose in it for our good and for your glory. So instead of sitting on our chairs longing for others, may we get to work and we get to cultivate and live this life that you have given us for your glory. We love you and we praise you. We ask this in Jesus' name.